evening, good evening, ladies. Welcome back. Week two of Ruth, My Purpose, His Providence. Thanks for coming back on this yucky, cold, snowy night when all of us just want to be in our PJs. So I get it. Um, we have a ton of ground to cover tonight. I really wish that I had four weeks to go through this, as there are four chapters in Ruth, and that would have been perfect, but I only have three. So tonight we are smushing chapters two and three together, so we have a ton of ground to cover, but this is the exciting part of the story. I love this part, and it's awesome, and it's exciting, and we get to see the providence of God come together. So if you were not with us last week, last week we covered chapter one, we got into our main characters, Ruth and Naomi, we learned about them, um, basically Naomi had moved with her husband Elimelech out of Bethlehem into Moab because there was a famine in the land, and by and by, she lost her husband. He died. Her sons grew up. They married Moabite women. They were married about 10 years with no children, so the girls were barren. Then those boys died, so Naomi has now lost her husband, her two boys. There's a famine in the land. And she is really struggling, really struggling through her trials, through the famine that God has put on her life. And we looked at that, looked through all the trials that Naomi was going through. Um, pretty soon, Ruth pledges her life to her mother-in-law. Um, the other daughter-in-law stays back. And they go back to Bethlehem, their homeland, where God has given rain and there's food and there's not famine anymore. And still, Naomi has a bad attitude, and she is really struggling to see God's hand working in her life. Um, we ended the night talking about the perspective of God in our trials and in the famine that he brings us. And are we seeing God, or are we super self-focused like Naomi was? She was only focused on herself. That's all we dealt with last week, and she could not see the blessings that were right in front of her face, namely her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who had pledged her entire life to her, and if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, do so now, the book of Ruth. Um, we saw at the very end of chapter 1, verse 22, it was the beginning of barley harvest. And here, God had brought them back to Bethlehem to the most plentiful time of the year, and Naomi was still struggling and cursing God and not seeing what was right in front of her face. So, in the darkest of times, we learn that God has a plan for his glory, right, and for our good, even when we can't see it. So um, we're going to read through chapter 2 together, but let, let's pray before we do. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this evening. Even though it's cold and snowy, thank you for all these ladies that are here, and thank you for your word, just as Brad was saying, that we can open up and learn truth from and study it. And I pray that tonight we would learn from your word and that we would come away with something that we can change in our everyday life. Thank you that your word is cleansing and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And I just pray that it would be that to all of our lives this evening. I pray that you would bless your word as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter two. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Hmm. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I should find favor. And she said, Go, my daughter. 
So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Naomi's husband passed away. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued to from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from some bundles of her her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food that she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and lived with her mother-in-law. Wow. Did you catch that in verse 3? It's my favorite part. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Happened. Uh, hello, Providence, right? Hello, Providence. We talked about Providence last week. Um, Just to remind you, what is providence? The protective care of God, the divine guidance or care. And we kind of talked about it being our God care, our God guidance. And our other word we're dealing with, purpose. It's an action word. Have is one's intention or objective. Notice Ruth wasn't just lazy, sitting in her house, waiting for God to dump some grain on her. She was active, and she went out into the fields. But who directed her? God did. Wow. The providence of God. I... I wonder, too, there's so much not explained about Naomi in these next two chapters that I wonder about. And one of them is, how did she forget about Boaz? I mean, 
Back in that day, if your husband died, you had to marry a redeemer, somebody else who was a, a relative, a brother, a cousin, a, somebody that could then marry you and take on all of your husband's possessions and all of his family. So of course, in chapter one, we hear Naomi says, there's nobody left for you to marry. You'll be with me widowed the rest of your life until death, right? How did she forget about this guy, Boaz? And we're really not told. So I don't know. Was she so me-focused that she just completely forgot about him? Did she think he was ineligible for her? We're not sure because there was such an age gap there. We don't know. But she didn't remember him, but God had a plan for their lives, right? I love it when God directs us even in the accidents, well, we think are accidents in our life. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you think, man, that was absolutely God? Um, about six years ago, my husband wanted to move, and we had lived in Sailorville for nine years, the first nine years of our marriage, about a mile down the road. And if it was up to me, we'd probably still be living there today because I don't like change. I like to stay where I'm at, but I married the wrong guy for that. So uh, selling houses, he is always pushing to move. So about six years ago, he's like, we're going to build a house. We're going to move. And I finally agreed, and I said, okay, I'll move, but I'm not moving to the north side of Ankeny. I'm staying on the south side, so you can find a lot, but it's not going to be the north side. So, of course, you know what God did. We ended up on the north side of Ankeny, and not just like north of 1st Street. We were north of the 36th Street exit, like almost Elkhart, north, okay? I wanted to be on the south side. I wanted to be close to church. My family's down here. His work's down here. This is where we were supposed to be. I mean, Target's on the south side. There are so many, so many things on the south side that I wanted to be near. But, of course, God moved us up there. I joked with my dad that I was going to be going to Cornerstone Church up there because we were actually the same distance from Cornerstone than we were to Sailorville. So anyway, we moved in, got to know some neighbors, and one of the families we got close to within the first couple months were Chris and Melissa Rodemaker. And some of you guys might recognize their name. Um, got to know them. Our families had kids similar in ages. And um, pretty soon, I will never forget the day I had a conversation with Melissa. And she's like, you know, we are living the perfect American dream. I mean, Chris and I have the best jobs. That We have a beautiful home, three wonderful kids. They're healthy. And I feel empty. I don't know what I'm missing. And of course, open invitation to share Christ with them. And within a few months, both of them separately trusted Christ as their Savior. They got baptized. They're still here at Sailorville to this day. All three of their children have made professions of faith. And two months, a couple months later, I can't remember how long it was, God moved them to Polk City. And a couple months after that, he moved us to the south side of Ankeny. We lived in that home for 15 months. And if any of you have moved, which I'm sure most of you have, 15 months is not really worth all the work it is to go through moving. <laughs> and I look back at that time in my life and I'm like, why, why didn't you have us just wait here in Sailorville 15 months and the house that we live in now could have opened up that lot? Because God knew. God had us there for those 15 months to meet that family. And that was his path, his providence guiding our life. And I love it when we can look back on times in our lives and seasons where we see no rhyme or reason why God's doing something, and we can see his sovereign hand working along the paths of our life. So cool. So when God does provide for you, and he will, what should, we, what should our response be? And the first thing I see here with Ruth is humility, to be humble. Uh, verse 10, 
She falls on her face before Boaz, bowing to the ground, and says to him, Why should I find favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She absolutely knew she was at a disadvantage. She was not an Israelite woman, and she was at a disadvantage with no special treatment at all. And her first response to Boaz's kindness is humility, to almost be an astonishment that someone would treat her in that way. God has hit me over the head with this this week as I've studied it. Our lives today lack humility, don't they? I mean, our culture is all about you, you, you. I mean, you did well in work, and so you made that promotion, or you, you raised your kids well and, and fed them all the right foods to make them all healthy forever, and you deserve that. What a great mom you are. You spanked them at just the right time, and you use this, and you use that, and, and we're just in a culture of praising ourselves constantly instead of giving God the glory. We expect entitlement. We are just all about taking pride in what we do instead of giving it to God. I read this quote by um, John Piper. I actually put it on my Instagram earlier this week, and it's really long, so if you can't get it down, I'll post it actually tonight on our Sailorville Women page. Um, This is what it says. Proud people do not feel amazed at being treated well, but humble people do. They don't feel deep gratefulness, but humble people do. In fact, they are made even more humble by being treated graciously. They are so amazed that grace came to them in their unworthiness that they feel even more lowly, but they receive the gift. Joy increases and not (sighs) self-importance. It about brought me to my knees, honestly, this week, looking at my own life because I am prone to want to be important, right? I want myself to be raised up and for others to see that and be important instead of seeing the gift that God's given me and letting it increase the joy in my life. We see that right here with Ruth. If you travel down to verse 13, she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So first she says, you've spoken kindly to your servant, but then it's like she realizes, oh yeah, I'm not even one of your servants. I'm just here gathering after your servants. I'm lower than the servants. And so she's doing this exact thing, seeing grace is coming to her. She's unworthy and instead becoming more humble. And I mean, I just kind of laugh because she is completely full of joy when she goes home to Ruth, or to Naomi, isn't she? I, <laughs> the way I feel like I would act in this situation would be to come home and be like, hey, mother-in-law, I mean, look at this. I worked hard all day except for a short break, and I brought back all this grain for you, and it's going to last a couple days, and I'm pretty awesome. And by the way, the guy who owns the field noticed me. I mean, <laughs> your son picked a good one. And so I can stay there the whole time, right? So immediately you're always wanting to have good feelings about yourself, but she's so humble. Obviously she does not do that and instead just has joy in what God's given her. Proverbs 29, 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. And you know this one, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will what? Yeah, 
will make your path straight. He will providence you. He will God guide you, right? He will God carry you. He'll make your paths straight. So when God provides, be humble. And the second thing I see here is be grateful. Um, We're back to our girl, Naomi. The last we heard from her, she was pretty upset back in chapter one. And the next time we hear from her, she's got a different attitude. And I wish that we heard from her a confession of sin, of her self-reliance from chapter one. And we don't. I, I was thinking about that, though. I, I wish that we saw this confession from Naomi. Like, man, I was so self-focused. I was not relying on you, God. I am sorry and confessed her sin and then moved on. And we don't see that. I'm assuming and hoping that it happened, but it was just something that I was dwelling on for myself this week. When I have failed and been too self-focused, am I seeing it as sin in my life when I am not relying on God? Do I see that as sin? Because it is. And giving that over and asking forgiveness and so I can move on and see God's goodness and path in my life. So the second time we hear from Naomi is actually in verse 19. And she's asking her daughter-in-law where she worked today and how it went. And she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then later on in verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. The Lord? The same Lord that you were really upset with in chapter 1? Yes. May he be blessed by the Lord whose, the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. I can't put it any better than MacArthur. So he says, Finally, Naomi is beginning to understand God's sovereign, working, loyalty, loving kindness, and mercy towards her because of Ruth, without human direction, found the near relative Boaz. This turn of events marks a turning point of Naomi's human emptiness, begins to be refilled by the Lord. Her night of earthly doubt has been broken by a dawning of a new hope, and she is grateful. You can almost feel the tension in her spirit. She was so angry and tense and her fists were clenched in chapter one. And here you can almost hear, oh, he's not forgotten us. Almost like a balloon that's popped and the air let out. And she's grateful. Are you openly grateful when God provides for you in your life? And this could be the little tiny day-to-day things or the really, really big things. Sometimes it's easier to be grateful in the big times and not the small times and give God the credit Um, even in your normal day-to-day talk, is it, do your coworkers hear you thanking the Lord? Do your kids hear you, your husband, your friends? A while back, I carpool for my kids for school, and I had a neighbor kiddo in the back seat with my kids, and, you know, pickup time at school is crazy, and everybody's backing out at the same time, and it was raining, and I backed out, and was like this close to running into someone else who was backing out at the same time, slammed on my brakes. I'm like, thank you, Lord, so much. That could have been bad. And the little one in the back seat immediately said, why did you thank the Lord for that? You pressed on the brake. You know, they weren't used to hearing that kind of language. And it was an opportunity for me to share with that little one why I was thanking the Lord. I mean, most of the time, they're probably used to hearing The Lord cited in a different way in a situation like that. And so even in the small little day-to-day things of life, we can cite gratefulness for God when he provides for us, and it's noticed by the outside world. It's noticed. 
Ephesians 5.20 says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And I love this one, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I love seeing there that verse in Colossians, that gratefulness and thankfulness and peace coincide together. We all want peace. We all want to be settled in our lives and feel the peace of God. Well, along with it comes an action of gratefulness when he has provided for us. Okay, we're going to move along to chapter 3. And as we do that, I love this old, old quote from this book, God Moves in Mysterious Ways by William Copper. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Let that settle in a minute. I love that as we transition into chapter three because there's some dark clouds that are starting to break. You can see it in Ruth and Naomi's life. You can kind of feel the tension that Boaz is coming on the scene. We see that in our lives too as we see God provide for us. So moving on to chapter three, and keep in mind that some time has passed a little bit in between chapters two and three, because at the end of chapter two, verse 23, it says that Ruth continued gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we know that she, this was throughout the harvest. I'm assuming that there was some interaction between Boaz and Ruth during these months that she worked in his fields. And here we go, chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? It's like, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. I don't know what has happened to this woman. She's gone from super depressed, and now she's a matchmaker. So, okay, here we go. Verse three, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, mother-in-law, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he redeem you. Good, let him do it. But he, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring out the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her what the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Hmm. So I read that chapter, and sometimes I'm just like, huh, huh, that's strange. That is really strange. And let me tell you, it is a hard chapter to study and make sense of. Um, I don't have teenagers yet. But I'm almost there. Nina will be 13 in December. And so uh, she doesn't have any interest in boys, praise God. But um, I'm no fool to not know that it's coming down the pike for me. I'm just thinking, uh, I don't think I would set my kid up for that. I surely would hope I wouldn't. I'm pretty sure none of you would either. So this is a strange, strange course of action, isn't it? It's strange. And... When we come to passages like this in God's word and we're looking over them and mulling over them and thinking, man, this is not making sense. What we need to do is go outside of that chapter and observe the outside passages and go further and further if we need to, to come to what we know in God's word. So tonight we're going to talk about what we do know because some of this is a little blurry, isn't it? This is what we know about our characters We know that they have a reputation of righteousness, both Boaz and Ruth. The first thing that I see is that they had a worthy reputation. It was worthy. The first thing that we find out about our guy Boaz is in chapter 2, verse 1, which you read just a little bit ago. It describes him as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So his reputation around town was worthy. Then, if you go down to verse 4, he comes into the scene and greets his workers. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And his employees answered back, The Lord bless you. It seemed very natural when we're talking about Boaz here. His employees were used to their boss talking about God. And they responded back talking about God. Then we see his first encounter with Ruth a few verses later. Um, Down in verse 12, he is citing God again, meeting this young woman. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, protection, you have come to take refuge. Everything that we know so far about Boaz is worthy, is righteous. It seems like his life is God-saturated, every part his reputation, his job. When he meets this young woman, he's citing the Lord in everything he does. It seems like his life is a God-saturated one. And man, if any of you are in here that are single and you have a guy that seems like he is God-saturated in every single part of his life, don't let that one go. (laughs) But when you look at your own life, even think about it. Man, am I God-saturated in every part of my life and my work and my mothering and being a wife out with my friends? Does my life saturate God? That's convicting question to ask. But that is what I see here about Boaz. He's God-saturated. 
and he's worthy. Um, I see the same thing about Ruth. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz is talking to her. We just read this. And she's been working in the fields for a while now, so people are getting to know her. It says, um, here it is, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Uh, the Nazbe says, a woman of excellence. Or the new um, King James says, a virtuous woman. Her reputation had preceded her in the short months that she was there. Of course, we know she's also loyal, right? She pledged her life to her mother-in-law earlier in chapter 1. We know that she has given her life to the Jehovah God. Your God will be my God. So, so far, we know that their reputation is one uh, that is worthy. And so did Naomi just have so much trust in Boaz and Ruth and their purity that this situation that seemed very dicey and provocative, that they would stand up to purity? Honestly, we are not told. We are not told why she came up with this idea. But what we do know is that their reputations both stand up to one of being worthy. Proverbs 10.7 says, the memory of the righteous is blessed. It was actually a verse that was printed on the back of my mom's um, bulletin at her funeral. And it's a verse that we use a lot for people who have gone on before us, and their memory is blessed. She was definitely not perfect. I was old enough to remember that, but she had a good reputation around town. She loved her husband. She loved her children. She was faithful and served the Lord. We couldn't even hold her funeral in our church. We had to rent out our local high school gym because everyone knew, man, this was a woman who had a good reputation and followed the Lord's. I want to say that about myself someday. I hope that people can say of me, I am the memory of me as righteous, as blessed, and that I have a worthy reputation. Okay, what else do we know about this provocative situation? Well, they had righteous willpower, both Boaz and Ruth. We live in a culture today that says, if it feels good, what? Do it, right? And we are in a sex-saturated culture. I mean, that's an understatement, honestly. We and so did they. Remember where Ruth came out of, the time of judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? There was all kinds of sexual immorality going on. We live in a sex-saturated culture. They did there too. And I mean, you can tell that sparks are flying, right? It's alone. They're alone. It's night. Nobody's around. They're together. And yet, for the sake of righteousness, they had the willpower to not go further. Another reason I believe this is uh, the Bible does not shy away from talking about when people mess up sexually, does it? I mean, it is all throughout God's word. You have David, a man after God's own heart, who screws up and cheats with someone else's wife. You've got Noah, who God chose to build this ark, and just him and his family get to start the rest of all of our generations, and yet at the end of his life, screws up sexually. You go on and on and on and on, right? The Bible does not shy away when people mess up sexually, and it does not imply here that there was anything. Instead, I honestly think it is a huge example to all of us that, look, they were tempted and yet could stand up for purity and for righteousness. We, even in, on TV, I mean, sex in marriage 
is not even exalted anymore at all. I mean, if you look at all the shows, we're so blind and numb to it, I don't even feel like we see it anymore. Nobody is having great married sex on TV. I mean, it's all people cheating on somebody and getting with somebody else and doing this. We are just in a culture where it's normal for people to not see sex as what God created it to be, holy between a husband and wife. And I see this situation with Boaz and Ruth as just an example for us to have righteous willpower to stand up against temptation. Um, and some of you might be saying, it's too late. I've already failed. That's why I love verse Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And Paul's talking about that to the Christians in Corinth. He includes the sexually immoral and the adulterers. And what does he say? Such are you? Sexual immoral adulterers? No. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So if you have failed sexually, I love that there's forgiveness and there is cleansing in the blood of Jesus and actually in the future offspring, we'll find out next week, of Ruth and Boaz, who is in the line of Jesus. There's cleansing from him. Fight for future holiness and sexual purity. And it can go from big things all the way down to the little things. The Lord's convicted me of small areas of my life that I just need to get rid of, run away from, and so I can have a reputation that is worthy and that has willpower. A um, few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, Let no temptation overtake you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, Right? who will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able, but will with the temptation allow a way of escape so that we can bear it. Love that. And what does that mean for us today? I mean, it can mean a lot of things, a lot of different things in your life. But I mean, unfortunately for us, I have to drive the 15-year-old babysitter home at 11 p.m., which is not cool. I want to be in my sweatpants. But to avoid all appearance of evil, protecting my husband, um, Letting my husband see my phone at any time. I mean, there's no secrets between us. He can see my email and my Facebook and my Instagram and my phone and my texting and everything. Whatever it is that you need to do to have a reputation of righteousness in your life. Proverbs 10.9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. MacArthur says, those who have integrity, integrity means who live what they believe, exist without fear of some evil being discovered, while those who are perverse and have secret wickedness will not be able to hide it. Psalm 141.3 says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my heart so I can have a reputation of righteousness. There's so much truth in both of these passages, all the way from his provision, his providing for us, how we're grateful and thankful and humble, all the way to our reputation and how we act and behave and respond to the twists and turns of our lives. Um, what is our reputation in the middle of it all? Is it worthy do we live a life that's in with integrity? We're not afraid of someone finding out something about us. Um, I love the verse that says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I'm forgetting the reference right now. 
feel like it's in Lamentations. Is it? Yes. Okay. Lamentations. Thank you. Uh, I just love that his mercies are new every morning and that the times when we fail, he is there forgiving us and his mercies are new. And so that's my challenge to all of us tonight is just, man, do you need God's new mercies every morning? I do. And so to look and see where it's at. Do we need to be more humble and grateful? Do we need to have a reputation that is worthy? There's Jesus and there's the gospel and forgiveness every day for our souls, which I love. And we got to see that in the story of Ruth tonight. And there's always purpose for the providence in our lives. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you again for this time that we have had in your word and uh, learning about the story of Ruth. And um, just we can see the different twists and turns in the path of life. Uh, right here in this little story. And it's hard for us, Lord, because we don't get to see that full map, but we are thankful that you do. And I pray that when you provide for us, that we are humble and grateful and that we would have a reputation that is worthy, that as others look at us, that they would see you in us. Thank you for the story of Ruth teaching us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. We have one week left, so chapter four is fun. We get to see everything come together, we get to see the end and how his purpose collides with ours. So thanks. <laughs>